progress. Okay, so we're going to jump right back in if you, um, I mean, you probably didn't find this podcast randomly, but if you did, this is actually part two of the um, podcast check-in with my dear friend Hannah Rich. So uh, go back and listen to the first one. It should be right before this one, if not, but we are discussing the, in my opinion, I'm going to break this summary down of the, the first episode of, we're, we're discussing the importance of living your true authenticity in every aspect of life, but including the way that you love, because the way that you described it earlier, which was very beautifully and very true, of course, is that love doesn't shrink, it only grows. And you don't sacrifice loving somebody by giving your love to another person. And the analogy about having children was a a really good one. I would think that some people will disagree. Uh, It'll probably ironically be people who don't have children. (laughs) But I I would align with that philosophy. It's not different just because sex is involved. It's just a different type of intimacy. Yeah, so if you remember where you were beautifully speaking about uh, the BPD diagnosis and where you guys were with your mental health and your tools. That's kind of where we were at. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I was going to, I was going to give kind of a, an analogy of what a very mononormative kind of dealing with jealousy feelings might be. Sure. Um, so a really common trope is seeing that a girl has messaged your boyfriend or your husband or whatever. You see a a missed call or maybe a comment on social media. And what you feel is anxiety, jealousy, fear of abandonment. And a common trophy response is block her. Tell her you have a girlfriend unfollow her on social media, stop interacting with her content because that is what will address that immediate unpleasant ick Mm. of the jealous feelings, right? Well, what that really comes down to is controlling the behavior of your partner, taking away their autonomy and their agency and saying you have to be my partner on my terms, Mm. And that's something that we have all had to learn how to address it. And and I say we, like anyone who is successfully undergoing ethical non-monogamy, you have to learn to treat that in a different way. Because in a ethical, in an ENM setting, maybe my husband has a date. And I'm suddenly feeling, you know, like maybe I'm just having a, a hormonal day where I feel a little down. Maybe I had a rough therapy session. Maybe we just got in a fight and now he's going on a date. Like there are all kinds of reasons, but maybe I'm just feeling a little bit vulnerable. Well, I could say, hey, I'm suddenly really not comfortable with this. I prefer that you just not go on this date. I could say that. I could tell him that that's what he needs to do. And while that will address the immediate feelings that I'm having, it doesn't actually help me work through them. Right. So instead, what I need to do is look inward, try to identify where those feelings are coming from. And so let's say we had a fight earlier in the week or even earlier in the day. We just had a fight and now he's about to leave on a date. I look inside and I say, oh, I'm, I'm feeling 
you know, okay, he's going to fall in love with this girl and run away into the sunset. That's, that's what I'm feeling. That's what my, that's what my amygdala is telling me right now. So I look inward and I say, okay, why, why do I feel this way? Obviously he's not going to do that. This is a first date. That's not what's going to happen. I know this rationally. I know this. So why am I feeling this? Oh, I'm feeling vulnerable in my standing with him because we just had a fight earlier. That's, that's the real emotion that's underlying this. So I can do a couple of things. Maybe I say like, Oh God, I was really a bitch in that argument. I I feel genuinely bad. I want to apologize to him. That's what will make me feel better. That's what will make me feel like I am in a less vulnerable place or maybe like I'm still genuinely really mad. But before he goes on that date, I'm going to say, Hey, um, I know that we had a fight earlier and we didn't really resolve it. And I want you to go on this date and not worry about it. I don't want you to focus on that. Before you go, though, can you please just verbally affirm for me that you still love me? Or maybe it's, can I have a hug before you go? It's whatever speaks to me and helps me feel less vulnerable in that moment. And if he's willing to do that, then I get that. If he's not, I don't. And now my option is I have to sit with those feelings And that's not really a good feeling to have to just like sit in that vulnerability and that discomfort. But a couple of hours later, he's going to come back from that first date and he's going to be there. He will not have run off into the sunset with this girl. He, you know, he will come home, which rationally I knew he was going to, but I'm going to have to sit with that emotion and that discomfort. That is very difficult for someone who does not have the kind of mental and emotional skills that our group does. That's a very, very hard thing to do in any of those options. Like for me to suck it, like if I'm still mad and I'm still feeling righteously indignant, I don't want to have to apologize right then, even though that's what's going to make me feel better. Or if he's still mad, he might not want to give me a hug. You know, so there are all kinds of things, but like, it's up to me as the person experiencing the ick to say, here's what I'm feeling. Here's why I'm feeling it. Is there something that could help me feel safe? Yeah. And then I ask for that. I don't ask for my partner to give up their agency. I don't ask for my partner to fake their way through an encounter for me. I ask for the thing that will actually make me feel safe. And that is both to my partner's benefits. I'm not impinging, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking away from their agency or their autonomy. And it's also good for me because at the end of that uncomfortable evening, Anthony comes home and I get to see like, oh, yep, he didn't run off. I get the ultimate reassurance, which is not that I said, hey, don't do it. So he didn't go. It's that he went and he still came back. Yeah. And that is, I mean, like across the board, a really healthy way to deal with emotional ick. Because it's usually, it's usually not about the first thing that, that, you think it is for sure. It's usually about something more than that. And 
that is something that I have learned in therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been doing EMDR therapy for almost a year. And one of the biggest things that I've learned is that, um, so emotions happen in your amygdala. They are involuntary. But how you feel about something is based on how your nervous system and your conscious mind interpret the input that you're getting from your, or I'm sorry, how your conscious mind interprets the input that you're getting from your amygdala and your central nervous system. Right. So to do this in a, to to give an example of this in a totally not relationship related way. Okay. This is my favorite example of this, of the weird, like your brain is just a big wet meat battery. It's weird and stupid. Only job is to keep you alive. And sometimes it does that in counterintuitive ways. Yes. It's job is not to make you happy. That's up to you. Yes. (laughs) Like your, your brain is not there to make sure you're a happy, wholesome, fully preserved adult. It's literally just to make sure that you're alive long enough to procreate. So, um, Children are often scared of loud noises, right? So uh, a TikToker, because of course everything's on TikTok anymore, um, had a video that that Ray showed me actually um, quite a while ago that was talking about a small child who was scared of the noise that a hand dryer made in a public bathroom. And to a parent, it's objectively silly. Like to an adult, that thing's not going to hurt you. It's the hand dryer. Calm down. You're fine. Right. And so the parent was laughing at the, you know, three-year-old because they thought it was funny. Because it would be funny if an adult was scared of the hand dryer because that's silly. And then was mad that the child was still upset. Okay. The fact that you know it's ridiculous and the fact that you are embarrassed has no bearing on what your child is feeling. They feel terrified. They had a startle response. They don't know what's going on. They don't feel safe. Yeah. Bless you. Thank you. (laughs) It's quite a sneeze in my life. (laughs) And if you like they, that needs to be validated. Like the first thing that has to happen is I understand that you're afraid. I even understand why you're afraid. Yes. When you're not feeling so emotional anymore, we'll talk about why you don't need to be afraid. Okay. But if that child never has that conversation. They're just, that noise always puts them on edge. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now let's fast forward that child 10 years. They're a teenager. They're on a flight. They're getting on an airplane for the first time. And something about the sound of the engines, maybe it's the same pitch. Maybe it has a similar aural uh, texture to it. Their nervous system hears that and registers it as a hand dryer. So their nervous system has an immediate response that tells their amygdala, we are unsafe. I am scared. And then their conscious mind, they're not thinking about that hand dryer. They're not thinking about the noise of the engine. All they're thinking about is I'm on an airplane and I am terrified. Ah, I must be one of those people who's just afraid of flying. And then suddenly they've decided they're afraid of flying. And now they will always be afraid of flying because they have learned that there is a nervous system reaction to flying. Mm-hmm. 
they have no concept that it came from that hand dryer incident when they were three or four years old. Right. Now let's say they go on a few more flights and then they become someone and tell me if you've ever met somebody who says this, I really don't like flying, but I'm usually okay if I'm farther up front or all the way to the back. I don't like being over the wing. Why don't you like being over the wing? That's where the engine is. That's where that sound that activates your nervous system is the loudest. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why that person doesn't like fights, but maybe it's not like we have no idea because it's just our brain trying to keep us alive. And then our conscious mind trying to figure out what the hell's going on around us. Yep. You know, like, when you turn on the lights, a cockroach runs. It doesn't think about it. Its nervous system just says, light, danger, run. Right. We have that same response, but then we also have a conscious mind that tells us more information. Correct. Like, we have a more evolved brain, but unfortunately, that lizard brain is still the thing that tells us whether or not we're in danger. Mm-hmm. So, if you're doing something that as polyamory is runs very counter to what society would tell you is the safe way to approach life. You're going to run into that a lot. Yes. And you you have to be able to express what you're feeling, identify what you need in a healthy way that does not depend on everybody else giving up their autonomy for you. And like, it's what we refer to that as is it's, it's boundaries versus rules. Mm -hmm. Like a boundary says, here's what I will or will not do. A rule is here's what he will do. So, uh, I mean, there have been, oh, a good one is um, at the very beginning of our polyamory, at the beginning of me dating Ray, um, Anthony and I had an issue around bedtime because we had always gone to bed at the same time. And so he had really tied the ability to fall asleep with me being there with him. And as we broke it down, I, he was just like, no, that's like, I don't need you there to fall asleep, obviously. But also, like, he kind of needed me there to fall asleep. And so we started looking at it, and it was like, no, no, no. What he needs is for me to not be getting ready for bed while he's already asleep. Because he's a very late sleeper. Mm. He has sleep apnea. It takes almost nothing to wake this poor man up. So then what I started doing was before I would go out on a date with Ray, I would take my pajamas and put them in the bathroom. I would stage them. So that when I got home, I could take off my makeup, put on my pajamas, and very quietly go to bed. So it it really had nothing to do with, like, you need to come home earlier so you can come to bed. But that was the first feeling. Yes. Like, the first, the first response, the first conscious understanding of it was, the problem is you don't go to bed at the same time as me anymore. Nope. The problem is when I don't go to bed at the same time, I interrupt your sleep when I do come to bed. Yeah. So I learned I can egress my house like a freaking SWAT team. <laughs> it is full dark in my house when I go to bed. I, I do not turn on any lights. 
I get changed in the dark. I go and get in bed very quietly. I have my retainer already sitting out on my nightstand so that I don't have to like pop open the lid or open a drawer, nothing that makes noise. Like we just found a new nighttime routine that worked that met the actual need rather than simply cowing to the amygdala response. Yeah. And I think that's something that everybody should learn how to do. Yes. But good Lord, is it helpful in a polyamory situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Um, I think, I mean, every, I think everybody should do therapy. I think everybody should have a basic understanding of way, the way that we function and what you talked about. Like that was the first thing that came to my brain when you talked about, like you're giving that example of him going out on a date and you feeling unsafe. And I, that is what I talk about with my clients is that when we understand, like, it doesn't matter what you believe in terms of how old earth versus humans are. Most people can agree that earth has been around longer and most people can agree that conscious humans are newer. And a lot of people don't know that Neanderthals are considered a completely different species than what we are today. Like, um, I didn't know that for a very long time. I just thought we were ancestors and we were all really, well, we are, but you know what I mean. And when uh -huh. that separation occurred and we became conscious beings, there, I, nobody knows why, as far as I know, there's theories to we ate magic mushrooms, that we ate meat for the first time and the protein changed the way that we were. It doesn't, I don't know what it is, but we did at some point. Some people believe aliens came down and then actually put conscious beings into bodies. Like, I, I don't care. It, it happened. We know that it happened. So we, happened, we go happened. from the animal, yeah, we go from the animal existence to the conscious mind. And that's the only thing that quote unquote separates us from animals is the fact that they only reproduce and look for shelter like that's the only thing that they do and what you were talking about is like that's exactly what it is is that if we could have a concept of understanding that the soul is newer then the soul reality is newer whereas the primal brain has been around forever so the fact that it has evolved from an animal body it's going to do that thing which you said which is its sole job to keep you safe the unfortunate aspect of it is that it doesn't understand, just like you said, the, the what did you call it? The meat battery? Is that what you had? Yeah. <laughs> I love yep. that. The meat battery, right? Meat battery is it's neutral. It does not know good or bad. It just processes it just like you had said. And then we come in with our thoughts and our feelings and we screw everything up. And so if the brain's job is to keep you safe, but it doesn't know what is safe versus what is not safe. It only knows what your reaction has been to it. Sabertooth tigers don't exist anymore for us to be afraid of, but we have to be afraid of something because we need the, the rationalization of why we act so crazy to stay alive because that is our purpose. That is our evolutionary uh -huh. drive is to stay alive. And if we don't have saber-toothed tigers and we don't have fires to run away from, we have rejection and uh, uh -huh. humiliation and all of those other types of human emotions that drive our fear-based response. So to not know why I'm feeling unsafe, but to have the reaction is the literal disconnect that most humans will never get, let alone should have, not only for your safety, uh -huh. but for your growth, but because then again, it contributes to society. You start to understand why other people are acting irrational and that you don't have to act irrational, that you can try to empathize so that you can then deconstruct as well and then help them to do that too. So all of that you said exactly what it, they don't, it doesn't know anything but neutrality. So we're the ones that are choosing yeah. that. And even today, after, you know, five years of personal development, three years of very intentional personal development, like you'd mentioned, we have to give ourselves like massive grace because I don't even get it right every time. I'm just now creating mm -hmm. the new language for my brain to learn. It was 
years of just recognizing that there was another voice inside my head telling me what to do and just living in that space for a while of that duality of it's not a great voice but I at least hear her now because it used to be so subconscious that I was running on primal body so now I'm in this state of awareness and now I'm in the process of creating a language (laughs) and then trying to get into a habit for her to learn that which is 21 days makes a habit 90 days makes a lifestyle and we're talking about every facet of your life that you've changed so how many days is that really going to take for the new dialogue to become autopilot a lot a lot a lot it is exhausting but that's the intentionality behind it and you have to choose your battles on whether or not you're just happy to accept when you were miserable or happy to accept that you're energetically drained but you're happy those are different yeah yeah i saw a tweet that like so perfectly sums that up that just says like them you're so self-aware me thanks it's ruining my life Mm -hmm. so it's just like it is true exhausting that is the absolute best word for it I mean there are days there are absolutely days where I'm just like I have nothing left to give anyone yes and on those days I can tell the people around me that that's where I am at with so um Ray comes over pretty much every week and he and Anthony and I have dinner um and it's just become like a little family time Like we sit and we have dinner together and the first few times Anthony was very uncomfortable. He was like, I don't really want to be joining your date night. And I was like, I understand you don't have to, but I'm making dinner. I'm not going to not make dinner for you. I'm not asking you to vacate the house. Just like, I'll bring you, you can have dinner in your office, I guess, if you want. And eventually he started coming out. But even now there are times where he's having a really, he, maybe he had a very draining day Maybe he had a really hard time getting sleep. He's just not feeling rested for whatever reason. He's just out of spoons. And he's gotten to a point even where he can come out, he'll eat with us, and then he'll basically just say, I'm feeling kind of murky. I'm going to go hide in my office for the rest of the evening. And we're like, okay, and he's just gone. Yeah. And that is a thing that we all do now. And, you know, there, there are times where, like, I, I really, I don't want to talk to anybody. Like there are days where I like the most fulfilling thing I can do is text with Ray and I just feel better. And I say, oh, I'm feeling really down. I, I'm just feeling, you know, like really overstimulated. Like there's no, I always know that I'm in a really bad headspace when I can't find any music that sounds good because mm-hmm. I constantly have Spotify playing. Uh, oh dude, my Spotify raft was like 98,000 words. <laughs> Sorry, 98,000 minutes of music alone, not including podcasts. Really astounding. But, like, I, there's always music playing. I know that I'm in a super overstimulated state if I cannot find any music that sounds good. So sometimes I'll just text Ray and just be like, I feel like garbage. And this is, you know, and he'll send me, like, a cute animal picture. Or he'll just say, you know, I'm here and I love you. Or whatever. And sometimes that's everything that I need. Yep. Sometimes I need even not that. Sometimes I message him and I'm like, I feel like such garbage. Um, I'm going to lay on the couch with my cat. Like I'm, I'm just going to grab a cat and I'm going to try to take a nap and see if I can reset my brain. Mm -hmm. I mean, being able to say, Hey, I have a negative feeling and here's what I would like to ask of you to help me resolve it. Yeah. Now also means that I get to say, 
Hey, I'm taking this space for myself. I don't, I don't have the energy for it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are times where, you know, we'll have plans to go out and Ray will say, I am just, I'm, I'm wiped. I'm peopled out. Can we just stay in tonight in our pajamas and watch a movie? Yeah, absolutely. Rather than him saying to himself, oh, well, I promised Hannah we were going to go out to dinner and now we have to go out to dinner and I'm just going to mask through the night. I'm going to fake my way through it. I'm going to pretend like this isn't a problem. And he's not having as good of a time. He's, he is safe. He feels safe telling me like, this is what would meet my needs tonight. Are you okay with that? Yeah. And then, so this, like, it just, it keeps layering up because then we can also make asks of each other that are things like, Hey, this is really, really important to me. Can you make this work for me? Mm -hmm. So maybe, um, I don't know. Uh, maybe Anthony's feeling really down, but we've told friends that we'll be over for dinner. Most nights, I would just go by myself and say, hey, Anthony wasn't feeling very well. He stayed home. But maybe tonight, I know for a fact, here's the thing. We've been invited to dinner because she's they're getting engaged tonight. There's a proposal happening. And we know about it. And like, I promise as soon as it happens, we can leave. It's really, it'll mean so much to them for you to be there. Will you please, please do that? Gotcha. And he knows that I wouldn't make that ask if I didn't really mean it because of how often we're all able to give each other grace. And that is something that I wish I could have in like every relationship in my life. Right. And to some extent, you know, everybody does like you messaged me just earlier today and said, Hey, we have a carpool issue. And we, we pushed our recording time back by like 20 minutes yeah. because life happened. No plan will work perfectly. And so we just made that work mm-hmm. and it was fine. You know, it, it's that kind of thing where, you know, in, in most people's relationships, that type of thing, Hey, I'm running a little bit late or Hey, something came up. Can we push to a different day? Or I got sick. Like, especially the last few years, like, oh, sorry, whole family's got COVID. We're not coming to anything, wedding, <laughs> yeah. funeral, anything. Yeah. doesn't matter how important it is. We're not going to be there. Yeah. You know, that's something that I think most people understand. And also being able to say, hey, mentally, emotionally, I'm not in a good place for this right now. Can, can, can we... Uh, address something else you know can we do something else can we change our plans cancel our plans can I have a specific type of support being able to ask that and know that it's a safe place to ask that is such a big deal yeah in a way that I never really appreciated yeah because I and I, I would have told you two years ago like yeah absolutely I can tell my husband what my needs are and I can you know but it had never been quite so intentional before and that intentionality it's incredible what a difference that makes. Yeah. Well, and the awareness again of what you need, because now you know, and being mm-hmm. able to ask for that. What, what was kind of ironic. So there was three examples that you just gave and I just, I'm finding myself in a, a huge state of gratitude. I have been for approximately 24 hours anyway. I'm just, I'm, I'm infatuated with my husband. A lot of people know that. Um, so push the button. My bad. Uh, anyways. So 
one, there was one that you said, like, when it, as an example of Andrew uh, wasn't feeling, oh, Anthony, I'm sorry. Anthony wasn't feeling so great, and he excused himself because he was feeling murpy. That was the exact word that she used, mm-hmm. and I loved it because it's, in a, it, it's a very, for me, a picture-perfect example of an attitude I know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tony is that way, too. My husband, Tony, is very much that way. Like, I've never felt any certain way if I've changed my mind about any plans we've made, including intimacy, if I've changed my mind for that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have the vocabulary to say I've changed my mind because of my past experiences of what we were talking about before. My primal brain makes me feel unsafe that if I tell my husband, no, never mind, he'll leave me, right? But he's never given me any proof to that. So he is part of that process that's changing my habit around saying that and having a different reaction, right? Which is cool. All right, let's just watch TV. Let me rub your legs. What? I just said I don't want to have sex and you want to rub my legs for the rest of the night? Oh my God. Okay, so that's one example. The second example was, um, I don't I don't remember exactly what you said, but Tony will do the same thing to me too. Whereas basically if I'm venting and it has nothing to do with us, he always, almost always will say, what can I do to help? And, yeah. and it, it's very, it's vague enough that it might be a physical action I need. It might just be an encouraging word or whatever, but the, it's just that permission again. And sometimes it, I'm like, I don't know, there's nothing you can do. I just needed to get it off of my chest, but that was all I needed was a, a supportive partner to remind me of that. And now I can't even remember what the third one was to be frank, but um, what's ironic, right? Is like, I'm hearing all of this and I'm like, everything she's talking about getting in a polyamory relationship, I've been able to get in my monogamous relationship. That's rare. Because my partner is a rarity to begin with, let alone as a cis hetero man. Um, so I know all that. And what's what's great about though is what I was kind of thinking about is that hear my heart when I say this because I'm not making this like this is not a true factual statement. But like for somebody like Anthony, your husband though, this is an ideal situation because of all of those expectations around sexuality and the importance of it or lack thereof for some people, however you look at that or whatever, he might find himself in a situation where he wouldn't have somebody as amazing as you uh, because of the differences in your physical needs in that regard. And so this is great because he doesn't have to feel a certain way about his libido or however people want to talk about that I guess uh because he gets that support from you and then you still get what you need in other aspects because he's not less than of a person just because this is who he is does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah yeah and it's so my relationship with Anthony that element of it is very much mirrored in um race relationship with his wife and again I don't want to get like sure deep into it but um one of the kind of hallmark traits of um, borderline personality disorder is a very um, a fluctuating sense of self mm-hmm. and a it, it it is at its core a delusional disorder right but it is really important. I want to clarify that does not mean hearing voices. That does not mean, um, hallucinating. What it means is that the brain of a borderline patient in trying to keep them safe is essentially telling them all the time, 24 seven, you're under attack right now. Right. Every, it, it tends toward a, hypersensitivity for tone, expression, gesture, anything that might mean unsafe. You're mad at me and yeah. you're about to leave. 
Yes. I'm unsafe. Yes. And that very fluctuating state of self makes for a not very stable relationship. Flash in the pan relationships tend to be what borderliners are known for. It's they, they, they love you so hard and then like they split and they hate you. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, the longevity of their relationship is very surprising, but it also speaks to why polyamory has worked very well for them because um, she has a permanent partner in, in, in her husband, in Ray. And he is her, I will never abandon you person. He's her safe person. Her comfort person is right. actually the, the clinical term. Gotcha. Um, and she's able to have these other relationships that don't take the skin off nearly as much when they end, because that's not the only person. Her, her fear of abandonment is not restricted to, I have to do everything to make this one person happy. She right. is freer to be who she is. Even if that changes day to day or moment to moment, because she lives in this structure where everyone's needs are equally well, well matched or well, um, equally worthy. Yeah. We all take care of that. We all want to be aware. Um, so, um, we are matched well in a way that you normally wouldn't think we are. And probably the only reason that works is that we are all willing because of the polyamorous nature of our relationships to break down and discard those prescriptive boundaries. So, um, Rick's wife, uh, will travel sometimes for weeks at a time to visit friends in other states. She's just gone. And during those times, you know, Ray doesn't have, like, if he only had a spouse, there were no other relationships. His relationship needs are not being fulfilled during that time. But because he does have that, she knows that he doesn't lean on her for that. Mm -hmm. She is able to be who she needs to be. She is able to take that time that she needs. She's able to take space that she needs. Um, Another significant element with borderline is low levels of empathy. Um, So it's, it's very hard for her sometimes to look at someone else's needs as equally valid. Right. She knows rationally that they are, but emotionally it doesn't always feel that way. Right. So we've built this structure where everyone's needs are equally valid. That's just a given. That's the water we're swimming in. And so it, it really helps, I think, all of us to be very equitable in in the way that we're treated, in the way that we treat each other, the way that we treat ourselves, the things that we do for each other. And yeah, I mean, it, it's just a, a really powerful little community and found family that we have that is very non-traditional. But I think all four of us would 
I mean, I, I think we would all die on the hill that like our lives, our individual lives and our relationships are better than they were before we met. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, like we have been only a positive influence on each other's lives. Yeah. I, and I, that is not through lack of work. Yeah. Yes. Cause that is like when, when people hear about polyamory, there is one response that we all hear over and over and over and over again. And it is, I couldn't do that. Sure. You could, <laughs> you, you absolutely could. You don't want to, and that's okay. Like the way I look at that is, um, so Anthony has been drawing, has been an artist his entire life, longer than I've been alive. Ray has been playing piano longer than I've been alive. They're both about five years older than me. They just started when they were really little, but it <laughs> makes me really happy to say they've been doing something longer than I've been alive. Cause they <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but they are both extremely talented in something that they've been doing their entire lives. I could become as good of an artist as Anthony. I could become as skilled of a pianist as Ray. Not easily though. Like if that was my number one priority, I could quit my job and practice piano or practice art 80 hours a week. I could catch up to them. I could, I absolutely could. I fully believe that, but I have other priorities and frankly, I just, I don't want to mm -hmm. like it's, I could do it, but why would I do that? The yeah. fact that they do it is incredible. And I love that they both built their lives around a craft and a passion. That's just not something that's in the cards for me. And I feel like polyamory is very much the same. Like, no, it's not easy. It's not that there's something inherent in the four of us that we make it work and it's totally effortless. No relationship is effortless. Like if you think your relationship isn't taking work, you're probably not in as healthy of a relationship as you think you are. Right. Like it, you, you should be doing work even in a really happy relationship. Yes. Yes. And it, I, I guess that's, that's, I think kind of the biggest takeaway that I, that I would love for your listeners to have that it's not easy it's not for everyone and that's okay. You know, I mean, like, let's go back to our very first episode. Like your thing is not my thing and that's okay. Like it doesn't have to be for you. If it is something that they're interested in, take it as seriously as you possibly can, because it is something that will, it'll, change your life. It will change the way you think it will hopefully change the way you care for yourself for the yeah. better. Yeah. And it, it's not something to be, it's not a thing that you take on lightly. And I do oftentimes see, uh, someone opening up a relationship when it's struggling mm -hmm. as say, you know, Oh gosh, I'm, in love with you, but I, you know, I'm also, I'm in love with my friend and I'd really like to sleep with them. And I think I'll just, I'll still love you after that. Like, just let me do that. If I, if I could just do that one time or 
you know, oh, one partner wants way more sex than the other, and they've really been struggling, and then they finally say, okay, fine, you can go sleep with somebody, it's fine, whatever. Like, when it's taken on as a relationship-saving thing, it almost never saves the relationship. Right. Because what you've done is you've introduced a whole lot more emotional labor into your relationship at a time when, like, if there's strife in a relationship, a lot of times what it comes down to is one partner is unwilling or unable to do some part of emotional labor to build the relationship yes. back to a good place. Yes. Like, it, it, you're, you're adding more emotional labor homework to an already taxed system that is like you're that's what's going to crush it and then people walk away from it and say yeah i tried monogamy or i tried i tried an open relationship once and it just it really didn't work out it wasn't for me no 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 in that instance you you were starting from such a deficit like you really need to be in a pretty good spot yeah to say it, like, I think this is something I'd like to try, or this is something that's always um, resonated with me. And I think the relationships where it starts off as an open or as an an E&M relationship do kind of tend to, um, to be a little bit less jarring in the adjustment phase, because in the same way that like when I first met my CEO, I told her I was polyamorous. Everything in our relationship followed that. That was the baseline. Versus if you build a baseline monogamous relationship, you have to deconstruct the monogamous part of it right. while you're building the polyamorous part of it. Right. If the monogamous part of it is already structurally unsound, and then you're going to try to build polyamory on top of that. Yeah, that's going to crumble. Yeah. But also that relationship would have tanked in a few months with or without the extra person. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's a, I think it is something that gets a pretty bad rap. Um, and I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think I, I I that... I've, I've never been happier. Yeah, yeah, and you look fantastic, and you can just feel the energy around it. But and what you said, you know, is like it's the same philosophy when people have babies, right? Like if they feel the relationship is strained, if we add a little person to this world, it will fix everything. And I don't even know why. I don't know why we came to this conclusion. Is there a little bit of drunk love when the baby gets here? Of course, because they're new and squishy. But that doesn't even happen for everybody. I just don't know why we. I mean, I I, I shouldn't say I don't know why because I do know why. I know why. It's what I do for a living, but. It is, it's such a displaced thing of fixing a problem by trying to fill a need in that regard versus like you had said, do the work. But most of us were never taught. Most of us are out here doing the best we can with what we got. And we didn't have models of parents or people that we loved that were processing first and foremost, actually feeling secondly, third of all, not trying to avoid by smoking a cigarette, doing a line of Coke or swiping their Amazon Mm card or having sex with strangers or whatever it was to alter their, their headspace from feeling shitty to feeling whatever. It, it might not be good yeah. and perfect, but it's better than shitty. So I'm going to get there yeah. by just elevating and distracting is really what it is. 
But I would agree with that wholeheartedly. It's not going to fix a problem by letting your boyfriend have a threesome because that's not even the intention anyway. Right. Not the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's a, you you said the, the, you know, I'm I'm feeling shitty and this is what I'm going to do to feel above zero. Yes. And that really is things like addiction in all its forms. Yes. Um, self-harming behaviors, not, not all self-destructive behaviors, but a lot of them are that same sort of result of what can I do immediately to get rid of this icky feeling rather than digging in and figuring out what it is. And that's not a short road. Like I've, I've been doing EMDR every single week with my therapist for almost a year. And well, okay. We don't do EMDR every single week. I've been working with an EMDR therapist and I see her every single week. And we have been through several different, I guess, issues that I have. And what we realized two weeks ago, literally two weeks ago, as we're recording this is that they all come back to the same really big core ick inside me and now we get to unpack that and gosh I can't fucking wait it's gonna be terrible I'm gonna cry so much I've already taken off the rest of the day from work after my next therapy session because I know it's just it's gonna be exceptionally rough yeah so it's not something that like you book an appointment and you're you're better in a couple of weeks like that's not how therapy works correct but it does give you a lot of tools. And even though I know that um, like this same source of, um, I guess let's call it like childhood trauma, the same source is the root of all of these different things. Um, feelings of being controlled, mm. my defiant tendencies when I'm given a directive, um, the fact that, uh, I don't like it when other people play in my sandbox, like yeah. it all comes back to the same thing. And even though it took me this long to get back to the same thing throughout that whole process, I could say like, Oh, this thing I have about being controlled, I don't deal well when given a directive. I might not know the exact root of that yet. I haven't dug it up, but I do know that the trigger point is a directive. Correct. So if you say, do this this way, no, Mm -hmm. I'm going to either not do it or I'm going to do it my way. Yeah. Okay, cool. So just don't give me a directive. Like that's what I can teach the people who are communicating with me. Frame it as a request with a timeline. Yes. Now I'm asking other people to do emotional labor and to be well-resourced because if my supervisor says, I'm your supervisor, I have the right to tell you what to do. Okay. Yeah, you do. But like, I'm telling you a very small thing that you can do that will help me to perform better. Can you get over your ego enough to ask instead of tell? Correct. Like it's just, it's something that if everybody could do it, we would all be better off. Yes. Not everybody can do it. Yes. But the more people who do learn those tools and who do recognize like, Hey, just because I feel something, just because I feel something that doesn't mean it's true. Yes. 
but I am still feeling it. So it, you have to deal with both pieces of it. I am still feeling this ick and I need, I need to somehow assuage it. Yes. But also that ick might not be true. Yeah, for sure. Like it, you know, the kind of feeling of like getting called to the principal's office or getting called to your boss's office and you're like, Oh God, I'm in trouble. I'm getting fired. Did I do something? Did I like, Oh my God, did I, did I like embezzle company funds and forget about it? Have I, is this a nightmare? Have I like accidentally skipped class all semester and now it's my history final? It's a, it's, it's that kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. It's not a true feeling. It's still a terrible feeling. It still filled your body with cortisol. It still gave you an adrenaline rush. It still spiked your heart rate. It is real. That doesn't mean that it's true. Correct. And that is something that is, that was so profound. And I have to be honest with you, a huge part of learning that has been watching Ray's wife because that is such, I mean, it's, it's, such a hill for her to climb. Yeah. It's, it's Sisyphus pushing, pushing the rock up the hill over and over and over again, because the, the amygdala response for a borderliner and the delusional, this is what I mean when I say like, it's a delusional disorder. What she feels is so bad and so strong that her rational mind has so much trouble saying, yeah, but it's not true. Correct. And God, now I'm crying. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it, it's a, it's like watching her learn that has really helped me to learn that as well. That, you know, it, things can be two things. Correct. It can feel awful and it can still not be real. Correct. And you have to deal with both of those pieces yes. in order to be able to move forward. And I think that's something that, like, just, yes, it definitely helps within a polyamorous relationship, but good God, it also just helps for getting through the fucking day. Yeah, yeah. I would say that, too. Yeah, as we're closing in, like, at this last 10 minutes, what that kind of resonated to me with... Um, so I went to the doctor recently, you know, it was, like, one of those, like, it was just a general checkup, and then I ended up, like professing how much I was missing therapy and all this other stuff. So long story short, my doctor recommended this book and I highly recommend it. It's called Feeling Great, which does mean that there's a book called Feeling Good out there, but I haven't read that one yet. Uh, and <laughs> one of the largest takeaways that I got out of this book so far is that we are programmed for black and white thinking. And the book doesn't go this far into it, but this is my woo-woo side is that, I mean, the whole world is duality, right? Like we are taught from birth that it's everything's black and white. You're good or you're bad. You're ugly or you're pretty. You're thin or you're fat. You're rich or you're poor. You're healthy or you're not healthy. We we are taught. And I mean, there's obviously, there's a literal truth that there is like for everything that happens, there's an opposite and equal reaction that happens. That's true too. But that's just the earthbound game, right? So we have to just remember first and foremost that that's here in this reality that we're playing. But the, the truth of the matter is that even though these things exist, we're almost always never on one side of this pendulum. We're almost always in the gray. We almost always, almost always. And uh, and then take this one step further into a different therapy session for my kiddo, which is just very profound for me because, you know, when the therapist asked my kid, like, why are you here? Now, why do you think your parents brought you here? Like, why are you here? What do you want to get out of this? And my 15-year-old said, I want to be a better person. 
And like when the, yes, when the therapist said that back to us, like my heart wrenched and I could feel my, his therapist the same way and bless my ex's heart who was on zoom. So it's a little bit different, but he's just not quite as in personal development for that immediate correlation that if my kid wants to be a better person, it means he thinks he's a bad person because he doesn't have the black and white thinking awareness yet that I can be a good person who's done bad things. I can be a good person who has bad days. And that is the truth of every single human being on planet Earth. None of us are intrinsically bad people. We just didn't, we're doing the best we could with what we had in this around that programming of what you saw or what you didn't see, which is just as important around that whole programming process. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think I squirreled myself out oh, of the book, the book. Okay. So the book was talking about like all of these tools because like it, it was a really in-depth like overthinking about like if you have this particular problem, there's 15 different ways you can analyze it and try to, to convince yourself basically what is true and what's not true. And this easy example that a lot of people can relate to, of course, is this mother's black and white thinking, I'm, I'm a bad mom. Right. And so the, the therapist, uh, this tool that I just resonate so heavily with is like he, after they go through all of this information about your situation or whatever, if I had a magic dial or button, sorry, if I had a magic button for you to push where we could get rid of this feeling forever, this thinking, this belief that you have about yourself, basically, if I could push this button and make your life easier, would you push it? And of course, most people say, yes, I want to push the button. And so then he says, okay, but before we push the button, we have to really also give just as much light to this thought, skill, belief, whatever it is we're talking about. We have equal awareness to what it has given you because you're only focusing on what's taken from you. And so the understanding of this example of a mother, like I'm a bad mother, what did that bad mother thinking give you? Well, it gave you the ability to discern that you could be a bad person versus a good person. It gave you the ability to keep your daughter protected. If you think that you've been a bad mother, it means you think you failed her, which means that at some point you believe that you're protecting her. So you have Uh been doing good all along. And so it was just this large aha moment. I get goosebumps thinking about it because I also went through that in personal development but when it's you, it's hard. And when it's you, it's hard to yeah. see the silver lining. And when it's you who's trying to, quote unquote, fix a problem about self, you don't see what that benefit is because you're only seeing the bad inside of you. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it is really important because, like, I'm going to just circle this into another scroll room real quick. I saw Tony Robbins coach somebody one time, and it was about this girl who was with her mom at the retreat, actually. And she's really upset and um, feelings about dad, right? And so Tony Robbins is basically like, okay, so your Maddie's abandoned you, but what did he give you? You know, and she kind of took, oh, what? What do you mean? He's like, if you're going to, if you're going to choke on him for all the bad shit he did to you, you have to give him credit for the good stuff he did. And part of that, again, was the credit was he taught me who I didn't want to be. He taught me what kind of parent I didn't want to be. So there's always a lesson. There's always something to what's happening for you. It's not happening to you, which is such a different mentality and headspace to live in. So when, when we give them that permission, then the second thing that the therapist said is, okay, so now I've changed the button. Now it's a dial. So if we could just tune it down a little bit, so maybe it's not so loud or it's not so prominent or it's not the thing that's autopilot for you. If it still existed in your life because it gave you all those things that you just admitted, but it takes away from the thing that's really making you feel lack. How about that? And that just was like, oh, that made so much sense to me. So that's amazing. Yeah. So, um, you know, everybody's pathway is different in terms of personal development and success. I truly believe that that's what we are here to be figuring out together is like you and I had a lot of things that you said in these two hours. Like I, I said that hundreds of times, right? Yep. 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 <laughs> I resonate with what you're saying because it's a lot of personal development tools that are going into keeping this, this, uh, this relationship successful and happy and open and growing as intentional as it should be. So, 
you know, there, there's so much correlation between that and the individual work that I've been doing myself that I, I'm very hopeful that your story will not only give other people permission to continue existing how they deserve to be as long as they're safe and consenting as well. But again, bringing in the commonality to making it more normal. And so the people who don't have the privilege to live authentically can step forward even a little bit like you talked about so that they, they gain that confidence and awareness then being able to show everybody else and then inspiring others to then live their authenticity which is what change is about like you had said at the beginning we cannot change anybody and when we start to understand that our notion is that i only change my own thoughts and beliefs but most importantly how i react to all the things happening to me other people are inspired by that. They don't all of a sudden want to become a coach or they don't all of a sudden decide that they are into polyamory. It's that they're inspired by the authenticity and genuinality. That's not a word, but living in your genuineness that I want for self, you know? So uh -huh. it was really beautiful that you were able to share all that and uh, shed so much light on those correlations between the neurodivergency as well and the personal development work. I think that those kind of go hand in hand as well. Um, People who are neurotypical, I feel like are technically missing out, but they just have this ignorant bliss that they don't know they're missing out on. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like so, if you don't have to do work to just exist in your day to day. Yes. It seems like such a big ask. Yes. To do that kind of work to like better yourself for the sake of the people around you. Yeah. Whereas like if you're in therapy because you're like, sometimes I cry at the laundromat for no reason. That's a good starting point. <laughs> That's yeah. a really good reason to be in therapy. But yeah, I, I think moral of the story is everybody should be in therapy, no matter how many romantic partners they have. Um, no matter if, if you're single, if you're married, if you have multiple partners, yeah. if you're in a monogamous relationship, but you still have multiple partners, like everybody should just be in therapy, learn to be better mm -hmm. for yourself. Because I, I think one of the, the biggest things that I've learned for myself since being diagnosed with ADHD, there's this really great movement that's go find less. If I am too much, yes. go find less. Go find less, yes. And also find what works. That like covered all of 2022 for me. Yeah. Find what works. Yeah. Because it is about getting better from a, from a mental health perspective, it doesn't mean getting more neurotypical. Yes. It means figuring out how you and your brain can make it through the day in the world. For real. And that doesn't mean, what that means is that in the mornings, I, in the evenings before I go to bed, I pick what I'm going to wear tomorrow and I have a basket in the bathroom and I get up and I stage my clothes in the morning. That's weird. There is right now a cabbage and a pint of blackberries in the door of my refrigerator because all of my ketchup and mayonnaise and condiments are in the vegetable crispers because anything in there is invisible. I keep my fruits and vegetables in the door. That's weird. That's not how people do things, but it's what works right. for me. So when I say I'm getting better, I don't mean that I'm figuring out ways to be more normal. I'm actually figuring out ways to successfully be 
less normal, but still have more or less normal outcomes. Not even less normal again. It's just less common, right? Because again, you're not yes. broken. Yeah. That's the idea is like everybody uses this hype word about needing to heal. And I say it because it resonates with people, but nobody's broken. We're just figuring out our own individuality right. and what works for us and how we can then again, be authentic, uh, be authentic. Because when we do, again, that is your purpose and your passion. And then you feel like your growth and contribution to the world. So yeah. we have 50 seconds yeah. left on this podcast. It was just jam packed with so much good information. And <laughs> I am so grateful that you took us right to the end with such great content. Anything that you want to say as we're getting ready to roll out of here, girl. Um, if anybody is thinking about polyamory or has questions, even more so than kink and BDSM, it's hard. So please do feel free to reach out to me. Yeah. Um, I'm in Rachel's group. I'm Hannah Joy on Facebook. Hannah, Hannah, Joy, Joy, if you want to message me on TikTok or Instagram. For sure. And if you have any difficulty locating Hannah for whatever reason, you know you can go through me and I'll connect the two of you for sure. Uh, but this was beyond really even what I expected it to be. We got like 15 seconds left. So I just want to tell you from the bottom of my heart that I'm so grateful for you, for your story, for your vulnerability, uh, just for being my friend after all this time and committing to being on this podcast with me. It means a lot to me. So, oh my gosh, stay happy, stay healthy Thank and you. wash your hands.